Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, 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 very excited to uh, be across from my guest today, Sherry O'Terry, believe it or not. I know you guys know her as Sherry O'Terry, and later on she will describe why in fact, everybody thinks her name is that, but I pronounce it hopefully the proper way. Before I get started, I wanted to thank all of you um, for being so supportive and so incredible. I never thought that when I started this crazy podcast that there'd be millions of people that listen to podcasts that I've been on. I always thought that my voice uh, put people to sleep, but apparently uh, a lot of people need sleep so that's very important so it costs less to put me on than anybody else that's good but thank you so much your emails there are thousands of them there's so many correspondents and people who've been so incredible and so supportive and all over the world i can't even believe it uh, and i'm i'm truly humbled by it and and grateful so thank you all as i sit across from sherry otiri I want to tell you that I told her as she sat down that I never know what I'm going to say as I sit across from somebody as I start my cold open, which is the six degrees of separation, I'd like to say, uh, between myself and, and the guest. And what comes to mind right now is this story 
that I think I've told parts of the story, but I haven't really told all of it. As a young manager, all you have is your persistence and your ability to navigate with different kinds of people. That's all you have. You look at the skill set of what a manager does, and for those of you who don't know what a manager does, to me, I always try to say the same thing to anybody who asks me. is like people give you a checklist of what they want to have happen in their lives. And, you know, number one uh, to ten or whatever it is is going to be different for every artist. There might be an artist that wants to be a radio host, and there might be an artist who wants to be television sitcom star, and there might be an artist who just wants to be the the greatest uh, host there is on television, or there might be somebody who wants to be in films. Everybody has their own things. Some people want to do a lot of things. Some people want to write. They want to direct. They want to produce. They want to act. And they want to do everything. And the reason why I'm sitting across from Sherry is she has been one of those people who's done all of those things. And and as you know from the show, I normally want to put people on the show who have been behind the camera and in front of the camera at least doing that kind of thing. So when I think about Sherry, I think about a story that happened to me as a manager when I was a young manager and SNL was a very important piece of the puzzle for me because I was in New York. It was a part of my life, but I wasn't in the world. Lorne Michaels didn't know who I was. Marcy Klein, the executive producer, didn't know who I was. Michael Shoemaker uh, one of the producers never knew who I was. Jim Downey didn't know who I was. And yet I was faced with the task of having artists who on their list was, I want to be on Saturday Night Live. And as a manager or for any of you out there in any profession, when you're starting, you have to figure out how to make an impact and get in when you know nobody you don't even have their phone number. You don't even know how to get to them. And even if you had their phone number, why would they pick up the phone and talk to you? So not only do you have to have persistence, but you have to be in a situation where you have some kind of thing that can back up why they want to pick up the phone and why they'd want to talk to you. And the only way I saw of getting into Saturday Night Live was the submission process, which threw me in a situation with everybody else. But when I called Lorne or I called Marcy or Michael, no one would pick up the phone. And why would they? Because I was just a random person calling. I was a young manager. But I had a few different people who were interested in the show early on. The first one was Jay Moore. And luckily for me, through submissions and through uh, some stand-up showcases that I was fortunate enough to work with him and his team, he got on and he was noticed and he was hired. And that was my first in. Now, that doesn't guarantee you that you're going to get your calls returned by Lorne Michaels or any of the members of the team. Because you're only going to get your phone calls returned if the person you have on the show is making a monstrous impact on the show. And at the time, Jay Moore, you know, I felt like he was sort of like a, a great baseball player who was somehow on the bench 
and didn't get to get in probably because he was only like 21 or 22 years old and there were a lot of senior people ahead of him and he didn't have the emotional tools in his toolbox back then to be able to know how to navigate in that world so if something didn't go his way he would make it be known that he was unhappy he would let people know that he was disappointed. And so I had the in, but Jay wasn't exactly ingratiating himself to the show. He'd done some great things on the show, but he wasn't really in that position where he was getting to the point where things were going as well as he wanted them to go. And what happened was after his uh, second year, as Lauren often did and the show often did, they would say to the cast member, listen, we're not sure what we're going to do. We'd like to extend your option another 30 days. And so I asked Jay if he would do that. He said, yes, we extended another 30 days. Then after that option, about a few days before, got the call from Business Affairs. We'd like to extend your option another 30 days. You know, Jay said, you know, let's let's do it. I, you know, want to do the show. I, I know they're deciding on other people, and hopefully they'll look at the other people and they'll realize I'm the guy. About 30 days later, I get the call. They want to extend them again for a third time. I called him up. He said, no, I, I, I don't want to do it. I'm going to take my chances, and I'm going to, if you can tell them if they want me, I'm available, but... I want to see what's out there for me this next month or so. And what happened during that next month is he got an audition for Jerry Maguire. And he ended up auditioning for the babysitter role with the jazz tapes. He ended up auditioning for the quarterback, which was Jerry O'Connell. And then he finally auditioned for the role of Bob Sugar, which he tested with Tom Cruise and got it. So that worked out for him. But during that period, when I'm the guy who's making the calls, it doesn't ingratiate yourself to the team of people there when you're the guy saying no. You're the guy saying no to Lorne Michaels. And I had to fight a little bit harder to get people noticed. But I had people that I was working with, uh, Jim Brewer and Daryl Hammond, who really wanted to be on the show. That was their goal, to be on the show. The problem with Daryl Hammond was the fact that I really didn't know Daryl that well. And he was a guy who was very, very closed off. You know, Daryl Hammond was one of those guys who, and I could say this if he were here, he was a mystery because he was a constant serious person and rarely funny in a group of people, rarely funny face to face. But when he got on stage, holy shit funny. And so I remember with him, and this is the story I want to tell because I've already told the Jim Brewer story. Daryl had met with me and said that he, his only goal was to do Saturday Night Live. And I said, if I don't get you Saturday Night Live, fire my ass. And I realized he signed with me over all these other people because I convinced him that I could get him Saturday Night Live when I had no control over getting him Saturday Night Live. It was going to be his talent. But I realized that if I could utilize his talent and my skills as an editor and a creative person, I could at least get him in the door. And then once I got him in the door, I could prepare him for 
the show. Now, at this time, you were at the Groundlings, and you were doing your thing. And I remember, if I'm not mistaken, as I was going through this process, an announcement came out that you and Will Ferrell had gotten the show early. It was somewhere like at the very end of that first season. That season was over. And normally they go through a whole thing where they look at people, and in August and September they start adding people. But I saw the announcement. It's like, holy shit, they're hiring these two people. Did I miss out on the boat? Because I guaranteed Daryl that I was going to make this happen. So to hopefully make a long story not as long as it is and have you fall asleep on the couch. I convinced Daryl to go to a comedy club, Caroline's, and I said, I want you to do all your impressions and I want to film it professionally. And I'm going to go in and edit it. And so I went in. And I edited it, and this guy, this 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 guy who I used to do all my editing with, was a Vietnam veteran, and he was a little bit out there, the kind of character that you would you would think would be a stereotype of of whatever it is, stereotype of a Vietnam veteran, high strung whatever, and he used to leave me to edit because I was a good editor. And so I remember I had my assistant, Lynn Getz, because I was at the last minute editing this thing because the deadline was the next day. And I knew I've always believed in FedEx, even though they were right down the street. I've always believed in FedEx. If you send somebody a FedEx, they will open the FedEx. And so I'm editing Daryl's footage in this room, this editing bay. There's tapes everywhere. It's like a A-bomb victim from Nagasaki, this video place and whatever. I'm doing it. FedEx deadline is nine. My assistant is waiting, holding open the door of FedEx so I can run to it down the street. And I'm editing, and I'm almost done with Daryl's thing, editing down to about seven minutes of all these great characters, and the power goes out in the place. I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do? I I literally, I run out of there. I, I try to find the security guard. You got to, he's a backup power. What can you do? He's like, I'm working on it. So you got to work harder. You got to get it done. I go back up. I've locked myself out of the office. I got to go back down. Could you give me the key, please, sir? You got to get this. Hey, do you want me to work on the power or you want the key? Nobody's in the building except you. I said, please, just just get it done, whatever. He gets a portable generator or does something, and he gets it going. I get back in there. I do the final edits. I record it from this three-quarter-inch tape to a, a VHS tape. I put it in the FedEx, and I am jogging like O.J. Simpson through the airport in the Hertz commercial, down midtown to this thing. She's holding open the door. They're yelling at my assistant, which was Lynn Getz, the, a wonderful, Katz and Getz, a wonderful woman who was the light of my life uh, back then. And we get it. It gets to SNL, and... Literally less than a week later, I get the call. We're going to want to see Daryl Hammond. We're going to set him up at the comic strip, and we're going to test him. I said, you're going to test him off the tape. Yes, we're going to test him. We're going to do a test deal at the comic strip. And so we worked on the set. He went on. It went great. And I thought, well, this is all we have to do. I've done it. I've been persistent. I've got it going. But no, Lauren says... We want him to come to 30 Rock now and do another test. And so before he went to 30 Rock, 
I thought to myself as a manager, what am I going to add to the process? This guy's got the talent. He's done it. What can I do? And I said to him, Daryl, I think you can get this thing if you figure out a through line, some kind of through line, because you're the kind of guy, if you could just figure out a character that they could show, they could see that they could say this could seamlessly go on their first show of the year, which you you uh, had leg up was your first character. And so I said, what impression do you have that you've never shown me before? No one's ever seen your stand up, but you can do. That's what I need to see. Is it something that they could put on the show? And he's going through, he's like, I don't know. There's only one impression I do, but it's, it's never been funny. And I said, well, what is it? Ted Koppel. I said, Daryl, your test has got to be a situation where you got Ted Koppel introducing all these characters on Nightline. That should be your test. And that was his test. And they loved it. They asked him back a second time to do some more characters. They loved that, and he got the show. I believed in myself enough to put myself out there and go forward, and when I didn't even really know if I could get him on SNL. But I saw his talent, and I realized with a persistence, if you have some kind of product or some kind of quality that can get you noticed, you put the two together, and it's like... It's like lighter fuel on the fire and a master of impressions. And the greatest thing that I remember was the first episode of the year. I go there early to SNL because he didn't really want to tell me much of anything because he didn't want to jinx anything. And I remember getting there early and I ran into a young five foot five fireball of a woman and I ran into uh, Sherry as she was getting ready for her first show. And I thought to myself, well, when I meet her, she's going to be rude or she's going to be in a situation where she's just completely like focused on what she's doing. But as I've told her all through my life, from the first moment I met her, she treated me like I was like gold and like I was one of the family. All these things on her mind, her first live television show. And she took the time to talk to me and to ask me how I was doing and what was happening in my life. And that meant the world to me. And it proved to me that the good guys can win and the good girls can win. And also in terms of management, Another thing was proven to me through persistence and talent. As I went to the live show at 1130 and I stood there in the hallway and watched the monitor, the first thing that came up was Daryl Hammond as Ted Koppel in Nightline. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. 
I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here with the magnificent Sherry O'Terry, and this is going to be a very inspirational episode. I know it. I feel good. There's oh, a great, great energy here. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the bar down a little. Okay, lower your expectations, everybody. <laughs> so as I do, I'd like to introduce you and give you the proper introduction. Sherry O'Terry was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and later moved to Los Angeles, where she worked in promotion for A&M Records. She joined the Groundlings, which is an improvisational company on Melrose Avenue, which is very, very famous. And in 1995, the producers of Saturday Night Live saw one of her monologues, which led to an audition and for eventually being hired as a cast member. She appeared in her first film, uh, Liar, Liar, and several others, including Scary Movie, a great role in Inspector Gadget, uh, Dumb and Dumber, When Harry Met Lloyd. Cinema classics. Uh, Shrek the Third, <laughs> Southland Tales, and Grown Ups 2 with Adam Sandler. In 2009, Sherry became a regular voice in the Fox Network's animated comedy series, Sit Down, Shut Up, which has always been critically acclaimed, which later moved to Comedy Central. Additionally, Sherry has made multiple guest appearances on TV shows such as Just Shoot Me, in which she was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award, Strangers with Candy, Jess see the new normal hot in Cleveland and of course as an emotionally unstable nanny on one of my favorite shows of all time curb your enthusiasm ladies and gentlemen please welcome my guest today pound for pound one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life the four foot 12 inch <laughs> Sherry O'Tiri. <laughs> thank you everyone uh, Are we supposed to pretend like there's people in here? <laughs> you can pretend whatever you want. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Good. I'm very, Good. very happy you're here. I have so many things to ask you, but I guess uh, if you don't mind, before I ask you all the way back questions, could you let our audience know how your name has been pronounced wrong for all these years? Okay. When I got to SNL... <clears throat> my name was always pronounced Sherry O'Terry. Um, and then when I moved to L.A., some people said O'Terry, but 
I never corrected them because it was like mm, potato, potato. I mean, maybe I should have, but it, it just never bothered me um, because Sherry, E-R-I, is pronounced Eri. So, oh, Terry, E-R-I, should be. And I'm always in the crossword puzzle because of my name, too. It's going to be bad when, when it's the only thing they can't get. <laughs> um, but I said, uh, I was walking down the hallway at 8H Studio, and this very tall, white-haired man walked up to me. And it was so wild. He goes, Sherry. <laughs> and I immediately knew who he was. He goes, Don Pardo here. <laughs> and I go, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> and he goes, I uh, would like to know, how would you like me to pronounce your name? And to me, I didn't think that there was any other pronunciation than Sherry O'Tier. And he, I go, uh, uh, whatever you think is best. And he goes, I like the rhyme. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I said, Okay. I was just so excited. And then it started and I saw the opening, Sherry O'Terry. And then some people said, why is he pronouncing your name like that? And I said, it's Don Pardo. Leave him alone. He can do what he wants. You know, it just wasn't that big of a deal to me. But I always say Sherry O'Terry. I mean, you know, I don't think it's that big of a difference. I don't know. And, you know, you talk about nice people and, you know, I consider you to be one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I'm, I, I, I promise you, I'm not saying that just because of everybody who knows you, every friend you have and anybody who can call your, you a friend knows that everybody you've ever met knows that. Well, so. I was very shocked when you told that story because I thought to myself, man. He must have been treated like shit because I don't remember being that nice. <laughs> no, that's well, but the, the thing was uh, during, you know, you would probably say that you had so much on your mind that you weren't well, treating no, people nice. Me, it's like you see the same people week after week. And it's like to me, it's very easy to be nice. It's, it takes a lot of energy to not be, especially when you see somebody, even though you may not know them or who they represent or what the deal was, you know, but if you see them week to week. Like that, that always amazed me, you know, people that could, you see week to week and could just turn and not say hi or, or pretend that they, you know, they never saw you. I mean, that's, a, that's crazy to me, but you know, we were all scared. No, but you, you didn't, you didn't give the illusion on the outside that you were scared. You might have been scared on the inside, but you didn't give the, that illusion. But didn't you say it once that I was like this fragile little bird? Yes, you were. But you, you know, most fragile little birds, for some reason, they fly the fastest and they're above the fray and they somehow are able to get away from all the danger. And I think that sometimes it's like a paradox. And I know what you're saying, like people think fragile bird with a broken wing or whatever. But I didn't think of you as fragile. I thought of you as a delicate little bird, but that was somehow surviving in this group of like seagulls and uh, barely. But what I wanted to, barely. But what I wanted to say was, I was you, hanging by a thread. I doubt it. But you as a nice person, we mentioned the late Don Pardo, and. Don Pardo, for those of you who, who never had the opportunity to meet him or know him. What a beautiful, beautiful man. I, I, I honestly, I mean, I swear to you, I almost want to cry because it's like he just, 
the guy was just all love. He was nothing but love. And he would always talk about uh, Florida and his grandchildren. And, um, you know, he, he almost made it like a normal place. You knew you were going to see him. You always knew he was going to be there. And it's like almost this grandfather. Um, and all really he cared about was having, you know, going to work. So sweet to everyone. And, you know, going to his place in Florida and playing with his grandchildren. It was just like, oh, just loved him. You know, he was like a one of those lights that, you know, that always beamed in a place that could feel sometimes so dark, you know? Yeah, and he, he was a, a, a ray of light. And, mm -hmm. and what's interesting is that, you know, before we get into the backstory, there were a few different people like that. There were these wonderful rays of light there, and you and they were there year after year. There was a a nurse that was probably smaller than you yeah, that yeah, was there, yeah, yeah. Um, She's sweet. and she was just so incredible. She was just always so nice, and and there were so many people like that amongst the craziness that were so calm and kind. There and, were so many characters too behind the scenes, like Will's dresser was a woman named Dixie, and she used to be a stripper. And she one time brought in a um, a picture of herself in a huge martini glass, naked, and was like, mm, I don't know if I need to see this. <laughs> but it was funny because when I did Robin Bird, she goes, you know, she talked like this, Dixie. You know, um, I remember when she got her start, we were doing the same club in Jersey. <laughs> And, you know, I just wanted to get my pajamas on and, and lay in bed and just, you know, tell me the story of when you and Robin Bird just first started out. <laughs> Auntie, it was really cute. I want to go way, way back. Okay, way, way back to Upper Darby as opposed to Lower Darby, Pennsylvania. Well, there was a difference. You're born in Philadelphia. You grow up there. So tell me about... I grew up right outside in the suburbs. Yeah. So tell me about the lifestyle of your family, the socioeconomic class of the neighborhood, and tell me what your first inspiration was to be in the entertainment business, and, and what was it that made you say, you know, I, I want to get involved in this crazy I uh, I never said that. Um, as I was growing Never up, said that in your life? When I was... A kid growing up, no. You know, I just looked at it like there was something wrong with me. And wait, 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 time out here. I'm sorry to, I've, I've never said time out to any guest. Something wrong with you. I what never was wrong with you? I never saw myself as necessarily talented or gifted. I just knew that I always felt like I don't know why I think this way or why I live in my imagination so much. You know, I would be inside, and I grew up middle-class family. My, my, my mother and father weren't together. My dad lived somewhere else. Wait, when did they get divorced? I was like in second grade. Which is bone-crushing at that age. Oh, and I got glasses. It was like, jeez, what a bad year. No LASIK surgery back no then. No LASIK surgery, and the frames were thick and dark. Um, and then my Nana made me get my, a shag haircut and it was like insult to injury. Um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, so, and I was a middle child. Were you, it were was, you trying to score at eight? 
No, but all the girls on my street are Irish and just had blonde hair and freckles and peaches and cream skin. And even though I'm half Irish, I had like a little bit of a mustache and I had like, you know, a little bit too much of an eyebrow, you know, and it was I looked very uh, Italian and um yeah. And what kind so, of things were in your imagination back then that you didn't understand? Well, you know, growing up in my uh, house, it was to say it was chaotic is just it's an understatement. So it was your mother, you and who else? Was... My brother and my sister. I was in the middle and um, it was completely uh you know, chaotic. Everybody says that and everybody knows their own, only knows their own chaos because everybody's comparing themselves to the family up the street. And even the family up the street wasn't really, you know, all together. But um, I didn't make a lot of friends. And so uh, I was so needy for attention from my mother who could not give it. She just, she was a mess. You know, uh, could you define the mess? Um, like was she emotional mess or yeah. was she? Yeah. And this was before, you know, real therapy or antidepressants. And I remember years ago, my sister saying to me, you know, mommy's on antidepressants. I'm like, oh, great. Now she, yeah. Well, the damage <laughs> is done over here. Uh, <laughs> good for her. So, um, <laughs> So it's kind of like I always looked at her to look back at me to find my identity, almost. She looked toward your mom to find your identity. Yeah, it's almost like if she looked back at me, for some reason, I always felt like I was born without an identity. And what it made me do and, you know, to be needy or to be sensitive or creative, there was no room for that. That spelled weakness. And, you know, I remember as a kid, whenever I said anything was wrong, my Nana would say, oh, listen to Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> and I was just like, who's Sarah Bernhardt? And I never knew who she was, but I was called it by my Nana all the time. And then I found out she was an actress and I actually bought a book on her, you know, um, uh, like last year. Uh, and it was really, you know, but I felt like I just used to watch people. I used to study people and then I would daydream during the day and I would be in my room and it was like the Sherry show in my head and I would also, was, music was a big part, and I would always picture myself singing the songs. And, yeah, so I I really, and it, and it didn't help me be present as I got older, you know, because it's almost like I could go into my own head and just disappear, and no one was wondering where I was. So it was not to make me say, you know, feel sorry or anything, but it's like a lot of kids, how do you cope with not getting basic needs met, you know, you kind of find ways as a kid and they end up not working for you as you get older, of course. And then you kind of, you're already wired that way. So I feel 
like, um, oh, what I used to do when I was a kid, I would always pay attention to whatever made my mother laugh because her happiness was my happiness. If she was happy, I did everything to make her happy. Um, I would clean the house. I would compliment her. I would, what I didn't realize back then was I was mothering her. And well, I remember when she wasn't sleeping during the day and I would come from school, I would be so happy because she would have albums, comedy albums on. And she'd be downstairs like being a mom and doing mom things. And I would be so happy. You know, she'd be in the kitchen or making a craft or something like that. And um, what kind of comedy? Album? She listened to uh, like John Biner, um, Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, Cheech and Chong. Um, and. Uh, oh. She she really loved listening to albums, but because when I heard her laugh, I started studying the albums and I really started listening. So as a child, I was kind of understanding comedy, adult comedy, um, by just listening and then understanding things in the context of the sentence. And I loved listening to it. Then I started getting it. And like I would laugh. Like it's Cheech and Chong and her sister Mary Elephant and all that stuff and Woody Allen doing the story about the um, uh, hitting hitting the horse on uh, on the way to the the, the, the masquerade party uh-huh. and uh, or was Bill it the, Cosby. Was it the elk or was it the horse or something? Yeah, it was the elk, like a deer, a deer, a deer. Mm-hmm. And then Bill Cosby, you know, um, play on the playground that's cement. Yeah. All of them, I had them memorized. And I remember being like in second grade or something like that. And it was uh, kids could tell a joke. And I raised my hand and she said, Mr. Tyrion, I was like, uh, I went to the doctor the other day and he told me um, I was schizophrenic. I said, no, I'm not. Neither am I. <laughs> and, and the nun goes, put your head down, Mr. Tyrion. <laughs> and I remember being like, oh, rough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so i then i would start when i would see other people i would go out and i would i'm a jew i don't remember the nuns oh well lay teacher (laughs) um i would uh, go to i would imitate soap opera actors i was hooked on the soap opera young and restless still watch it and i used to imitate um soap opera acting or I would watch Dinah Shore and she would always, you know, do a, a butcher a pop song, you know, left a good job in the city, <laughs> working for the man every night and day. And I would go up and repeat, you know, in front of the kids and I would just start, you know, doing the imitating Dinah Shore. And so the weird thing was, was that I wasn't making people laugh. I felt like. I was completely invisible, you know, so, um, and it wasn't too far from the truth in my house, you know, or even with friends, because once I wasn't making somebody laugh, it was kind of like, uh, I really didn't know what to do or say. Um, so, uh, but I studied television and you know, the movie that I that I wrote 
is all reflective of, you know, this kid who lives inside of her head and is so influenced by television and she just acts out, well, everything that she sees. And it's so weird because if she's not, she doesn't even know who she is. You go through grade school, middle school, then you get into high school, which always is a a traumatic time for not only yeah. <laughs> young men and young women. How do you utilize humor throughout high school? Well, to... I really didn't have, I had like one friend growing up. and Was it imaginary? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. But she really didn't have a sense of humor. And it sucked. It really, really sucked. So um, I, when I got to high school, the good thing about high school is I fell into a bad crowd. And the one thing about, and I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. What is a bad crowd when it comes to an all-girls high school? Oh, Catholic. my gosh. One of my friends was the like main drug dealer in the school. And now here's the funny thing. I did not do drugs in school. I was a virgin all through high school. Well, isn't that the way it's supposed to be for Catholic girls? Not at my school. They called it the whorehouse on the hill. The whorehouse on the hill. Yeah. So out of every hundred girls at your high school that was all Catholic girls' school, how many girls had lost their virginity? Now, do you really think I took a poll? I know it was me and the girl I grew up with. They were virgins. We were, yeah, we were virgins. So there were two out of a hundred that uh. were virgins. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I only knew my myself. And now, were you a virgin because you wanted to be, or were you a virgin because the I men were? I was a were... virgin because I was scared half to death to have sex. Oh, but there were men all over you. N no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Once a guy knows you're a virgin, though, you know, there's. When like when you're 17 or 16 or 17 and guys find out you're a virgin, it's kind of like um, it makes you even more attractive to them because um, they all think that they're going to be the first. And, you know. But I kind of went out with nice guy like. When I said no, like I truly meant it. And uh, I remember going out with a guy in high school. And we were making out on the floor in my house and I'd been going out for, with him for a long time. And I loved his family because I did not have that kind of a family. And I always wanted it, you know, the kind where the mother's like, um, how's, you know, are you hungry or something like that? And that's what his family was like. So he used to go there all the time. And I remember making out on the floor and <laughs> he we're, we're laying down and he. Remember that game, Tip It? No, not Tip It, where you press the uh, the dome. And yeah, the, uh, and the, the Trouble. Uh, trouble. Yeah. Well, I remember he put his hand on the top of my head and pressed it like that. And all I thought was, that's how you press the dome on Trouble. <laughs> and then, like, he did it again. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> and making out and then, like... He does it again. <laughs> and then I remember saying, what are you doing? Like, I had no idea. And what did he tell you? It's like, this is bullshit. 
<laughs> and gets up and leaves. Well, I tell his sister that Frank is pushing me to have sex with him. I think, I think that night he was just pushing me to give him a blowjob. But um, and I was like, I said to his sister Bernadette, you know the game Trouble? <laughs> well, the funny thing was, uh, he got in so much trouble. <laughs> funny thing was, he got in so much trouble. His family sat him down and said, she is a nice girl. <laughs> That's how close I was to his mother. And the worst part of breaking up with him when I broke up with him was like, I, I, I loved his family so much. Did his sister give you advice on what he was trying to do? Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Uh, she didn't give me any advice. But um, uh, I remember she laughed. They're such a sweet family. Now, but, I feel like I'm dig really digressing here, but I think that the, the you know, our audience is always fascinated by certain things. And I, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever asked this before. So here you're in an all Catholic girl school. You're so scared to have sex. Who do you identify that you finally decide, okay, this is the guy I'm going to make it all happen? Well, I got to tell you something. In ways that I was so unsure of myself, you know, in that way. There was no question in my mind. It was like I had strength because, you know, if someone said, aren't you afraid of losing him? And, and I think it was, I was naive because I hadn't been really hurt yet. And I said, N no, uh, if he leaves, then, you know, maybe he just really doesn't care about me anyway. I was very naive. And it was so great before you're hurt and before you start to, you know, do things for the wrong reason. I had never been hurt, you know, uh, by a guy before. And so um, I never worried about it, never thought about it. I had boyfriends for a long time and, you know, we would do other things. But um, and then I was 21, met this guy. And uh, actually, my my friend who was the drug dealer who had had sex at, I think, 10. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember being down the shore. We would go to the Jersey Shore in high school. And I'm like, and I would be with those, you know, we would all get a house and go, Mary Jo. It, oh, I said her name. It burns when I pay. All right, don't worry about it. what you have is a yeast infection. And then what you, all you need to do is I'm going to give you this. And then you're going to drink this. And it was like she was... <laughs> She was truly a doctor. I knew she liked him a lot. and She liked the guy who you Yeah. Know. And she would always talk about how great the sex was. And I used to love listening to that stuff, right? And then she went away to college, to school. And for, I don't know, almost a year he pursued me. And I was like, I would never, ever, ever. It had a long, long time. And then I called her on the phone. And they, he wasn't, you know, he stopped seeing her a long, long time ago. So you called her and asked her for her permission. Yeah. What did she say? She's like, you know what? I mean, this girl is cool and we are tight to this day. 
I'm a, as a matter of fact, I'm going to her house Christmas Eve in Philly. Um, and I remember saying to her, uh, she just said to me, listen, I can't say when I see you, it's going to be cool that, I, that I'm going to want to be friends. But I really respect you for calling me. And that was it. And she didn't talk to me. And for like two years, I went out with him for two years. So he was amazing. Mm. The funny thing was, <laughs> this is so, he was, it was, he was so huge that, you know, Mary Jo was way better fit. <laughs> you know you know it's like <laughs> I think I'm like a small guy's dream you know well uh, clearly I, I, I should have made my move earlier then um, <laughs> um, I always think to myself uh, when I'm when I'm if I if I go out with somebody like you know you go out with somebody who's a wonderful person and I've shared this with a few people and you're there with them and you're you know, you're at that point where you're about to get intimate and then you realize to yourself Jesus, this person is an amazing person. Chances are they've been with the guy who flew them all over the world in a jet. They probably, you know, slept with the Italian guy. They've probably been with the athlete who's hung like a buffalo. They've been with every single person in the world. And now they're about, about to embark on me. And I think to myself, how am I ever going to compete with all these people that this person has been out with. And then I realize all I have to do is find somebody like Sherry O'Terry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what I'm good for. <laughs> Thanks. There's more to me than just a tight vagina. <laughs> I can't <laughs> <laughs> I like when people look at my feet and they go, wow, your feet are so small. I'm like, you know what they say. <laughs> and what was worse is I had this ability when I was a kid. I don't know where this is going. I know. I probably shouldn't say it. No, 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 no. You have. No. This is hilarious. <laughs> so you have this ability. I could do kegels <laughs> and make myself have an orgasm. Really? So you could just you could just be in like a history class. Exactly. And... That's fantastic. I had more orgasms in church as a kid. <laughs> now how did you keep quiet? I kept quiet. Or did you just do them during the choir segments? No, no. It was it was just like the weirdest thing because I was it wasn't like I was I was very inhibited, so I didn't really explore, you know, very much. So you know, hey, it's not touching yourself. No, it was that was that considered it was very sick and sad. Was that considered legal in the, in, the, <laughs> in the eyes of the Catholic Church? Well, you 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 imagine doing that through your childhood, and then like you know going out with Long Dong Silver, and it was, yeah, it was not good. I remember seeing this comedian when I first started. His name was Melvin George the Third from Long Island, and he had this joke. He said, "Listen, I don't I don't wish." 
that I was blessed down there. I am a black man, but I don't wish that I have what everybody thinks I have because what good is it? What good is it when you're about to really get down and do it and all the blood rushes from your brain and your body down there and you faint? So, <laughs> well, he was a downer. Let's see the glass half full. Let's see the dick half full. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Anyway, so um, I uh, so keep going here. So then, do you go to college? Um, no. What I d- believe me that I even graduated high school was, you know, um, was pretty was pretty good. Um, I, right after my mother said, you need to get a job. And so she worked, uh, downtown, downtown Philly, um, at, for steamship agents. And then my sister worked for steam for another competing steamship, you know, cause they had the port there and everything. Um, import export containers that oh, was horrible, horribly boring. And then I got a job and I was the worst secretary ever. And I would just remember one time going home and think I was working as secretary, I was so bad. Um, I was walking, I was going home and I would take the bus and then the train to go home. And I stopped on a corner and I just started bawling my eyes out. And I was thinking, why am I not happy like everybody else? Like, why isn't status quo, you know, good enough for me? And why am I so unhappy? Why isn't, you know, because the thing is, even if you had a miserable job, you usually had a boyfriend and you were planning on getting married. And, you know, it was always you were looking to something else to make you happy. And um, it was just terrible. So I remember I quit. I quit or I got fired. Um, and uh, I had a series of jobs, you know, like kind of like secretarial jobs and then I remember um I always wanted to be in the music business I wanted to sing but I knew my voice wasn't good enough I did get in a band we played mostly in this guy's basement were you a lead singer yeah and uh I just I really couldn't sing and I knew it so I, um, I thought I'm going to get in the business so bad. And I looked into, uh, music, um, sound studios and, uh, in Philadelphia and music production companies, you know, very few, but there were some, and, you know, it was so hard to get in and I had no prior experience. Um, but I gave them my best shot and I went around and gave my resume to every music you know, production house and everything. So, um, so, but you, you, when you made the decision to move here, well, I worked at a place called the Chestnut Cabaret and it was all original material and my boyfriend, but this was in the East coast. mm -hmm, After that guy, after the guy for two years, right. I fell in love for the first time. So you never told the guy was hung like a Buffalo that you loved him. No, I did. But I realized, you know, I, I, like I did in the beginning, but then, you know, he was very possessive and it was a strange thing for me. It's like when no one really pays attention and all of a sudden you're like someone's world, it's like, whoa, what's, 
what's wrong with you? <laughs> but anyway, after that guy, I fell madly in love, and he was a drummer. Oh, girls, don't date a, date a drummer because you are the last to leave the club. <laughs> oh, I would. I would they have be, to pick up their own. Oh yes, and it's like why couldn't you play the flute or something <laughs> light on the go? Um, but I was crazy about him, and he used to take me because he was a jazz musician, but he made money more doing you know like cover rock and stuff. So um, we went out for two years, and and when he broke up with me, that was it. I like. That was the greatest hurt I've ever had. And I remember, uh, and then my best friend had passed away during that time. And I was like, okay, I must not be suicidal because there is, you know, it was, I was like in a really, really dark place. And I'm like, well, I got that going for me. Uh, so I just thought there's nothing I had for me here, nothing. And then. I just really did think, I was like, all right, what, was your, what is the biggest dream you could imagine? And then I, th all my life I wanted to move to, lived in California, but I really wanted to stay in Philly and have my own family and live around the corner from my sister and, you know, my friends. And, um, and then I was like, well, this is it. This is the time. There is absolutely nothing for you here. And so I saved up money. And there was a girl that I worked with that was going to move out with me. Last minute, she backed out. And so I moved out anyway. And I remember thinking, I, I came out. My brother was out here because my brother, my brother was really uh, uh, hard to handle for my mother. He was bad. He was always getting in trouble, really bad trouble. And so my mother sent him out to live with my father. who was living in L.A. at the time. And then, but when I moved out, my brother already had like, a kid, um, and, uh, my father had new, moved to Nashville and I stayed with him for like about a month. And I remember telling everybody before I moved out, I was so excited. Guess where I'm going to be living. And I was just, I didn't know California. So I was like, Panorama city. <laughs> and people would go, Why? <laughs> I'm like, why? <laughs> I mean, I just was thinking Panorama City must be amazing. <laughs> and I remember getting there and I was like, ooh, there's a lot of Mexican restaurants. <laughs> and my brother's like, Sherry, you have no idea. And um, so that was pretty funny. But I mean, to make the move from where you were to here, that took a lot of, I mean... You gave, you saved money, but still you're coming here with nothing. You're coming here with a dollar and a dream. You don't have a job. You don't have anything going on. Just a dream. Yeah, I tried to get, because there was a long time I was uh, waitressing and bartending. Um, I just couldn't sit in an office anymore. I couldn't stand it. So I tried to get my bad secretary skills back. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I'm the worst. And what I did was when I moved out here, I got a job waitressing at Carlos and Charlie's on Sunset. Of course. And uh, and I was doing that, trying to get, I was sending, I was so naive, my resume to every major record label. And I was, I really was, I even tried so hard. And, and then my father's friend knew a girl who worked in promotion at AM Records. And the two top record uh, companies I wanted to, to be at was AM or Warner Brothers because they had 
the best artists. They were alternative music before alternative music was mainstream. You know, they did not have uh, radio-ready people. Uh, radio, you know, heavily played. They had some, and that's how they made their money, but they were really into the artists. But anyway, um, so he gave this girl a call and said, and all it was was she called down to Human Resources and said, a girl, uh, Sherry O'Teary, is going to call. Would you just give her an interview? And that was it, right? And so I got the interview. And it was for music publishing, which was um, Alma Worthing at the time, Rondor Music. And there was a position open as a um, as an um, receptionist. And I was like, oh, great, because the receptionists don't have to do anything that take any skill. So I worked there. And the funniest thing was I got along with the writers. I didn't really fit in with the people that worked in the offices, but man did I love the writers and there was uh there was a woman that worked in our legal department and she said to me Sherry you're so funny because people used to say oh you're so funny you should do stand up you should do stand up and I just never saw myself ever doing that because all my life was about me being a character imitating somebody to be myself I struggled with you know and then to be myself on stage like that was further the furthest thing that I could picture myself doing. And then she said, Sherry, sure, you're so funny. You should do the groundlings. And I said, what's the groundlings? And she said, it's an improv troupe. And I, this is how um, sheltered I was. I go, what's improv? And she goes, it's comedy that you kind of make up as you go along. And I was like a cartoon character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I sauntered. Down to the groundlings, knock, knock, knock. Hi, I would like to take your classes. And, you know, you had to audition just to get in. And I started taking the classes. And it truly turned my world upside down because I didn't know something, a place like this existed. And then I saw who had been there previously, like Lorraine Newman and and Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman and, and so many people. And I was just... Like I grew up, like so many people, I was glued to Saturday Night Live because I used to think to myself, if I could do anything, it's that. Like I'm made for that. But you, I wouldn't have never dreamt that big. You used to say that to yourself when you were, when it first started in Because 75. what I thought was, that's pretty much what I do all the time. You know, like what I think is something wrong with me is pretty much what I'm doing. You know, like I would, I would go into characters and other people didn't know it, but I did it to entertain myself. I would use people to entertain myself, you know, um, and I still do that sometimes, but, uh, you said you had this very amazing quote in Rolling Stone. I believe when you were on the cover of Rolling Stone, you said, quote, when I was a kid, I used to just study people now as an adult. I'm being everybody I ever watched. Yeah. Like, I guess, you know, because in the groundlings, you, you know, I really was into the character development, you know, because there's three different, there's improv, there's writing, and then there's characters. And I'd love for you to share with our audience, because a lot of people out there, 
who you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who are in all different kinds of professions who <clears throat> hopefully take something out of this. But the people who are in the entertainment business who do want to do improv and sketch, a lot of people try to decide what they should do. Should they do the Groundlings? Should they do UCB, which is the Upright Citizens Brigade? Um, and when you were doing it, it wasn't run so much as a business as it was run as a creative space. And, and a business, but, and, you but, know, but they, more and more as things have gone along, oh yeah, these things are like these businesses where they make hundreds and thousands of dollars off people and you think to yourself, well, I want to pass and go to the next level. And each time that they don't pass you is another group of weeks that you have to pay to try to get to the next point. So there's a lot of people out there who are very talented even these days who go through the program once they pay their, I forget what the amount is now, but it's, it's a significant several hundreds of dollars and then they don't get passed and they, or have to they do can't it, even get in or they can't get in. But when they do get in, then they go again a second time. Sometimes they don't get passed. And before they finally get past the next level, they might've spent, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. So when you were there, how to take our audience through the process of, of joining and how you got to okay. the place where, in my opinion, back then, and I don't know if it's true today, but to me, the uh, mother load was the Sunday company. Yeah. Uh, I started in basic and I remember just going, when I would go home from my classes, I couldn't sleep. If I did well, I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. And if I did poorly, I couldn't sleep because I felt so bad. You know, I, and I couldn't believe that anything affected me like that. The only thing that ever affected me like that was like falling in love with a guy, you know, but I was just like, I can't believe how much this is affecting me. I love it. And I'm scared of it, you know? And so, um, then after basic, I was moved up to intermediate and, you know, I was so starting from scratch. A lot of these people, you know, they had headshots and people would say to me, I didn't even have a headshot, you know? And, uh, then after intermediate, I had to repeat it, which was the best thing I ever did repeating intermediate, because if you excel too fast, then you won't be able to sustain yourself, you know, and I needed to repeat it. And I was lucky because they could have just dropped me. And so, and I remember hearing that Julia Sweeney had to repeat um, intermediate. So I was like, okay, I feel so much better about it. And during that time, I was becoming best friends with Julia's brother who worked the box office. And I met him taking classes, Mike Sweeney, and uh, loved him so much. Now, was that the Mike Sweeney that's the writer? Or is that no, another Mike Sweeney? No, another Mike Sweeney. And uh, so um, then... After doing intermediate, I was moved up to lab and lab. The concentration is on writing there. And, um, and I loved it, you know, um, but I was, then I was working at promotion. I got, I moved over to the record label from publishing to, to the record label. And I worked for, uh, JB Brenner, um, in promotion and, um, I didn't have a computer at home and I had my computer and I would do all my writing there during the day. And it was cool because I learned how to write by myself because I wasn't on the same schedule as all the other kids that were acting. And I remember JB would look out and I would start laughing and he goes, if that's a sketch, I swear to God, <laughs> <laughs> I would get in trouble. And then what was really cool was finally I get into the Sunday company and everybody, how, how long before you, from when okay, you started? I got lab, 
Oh, so it was two years of classes. Two years before you got to the Sunday company. Yeah. Was that normal? Was that quick? Was that long? Uh, no. Was, uh, mm, a lot of people uh, only had to wait like maybe a year, a year and a half in advance. But I had to wait two years. So when but you, I didn't care, you know. So when you get into the Sunday company, how many people, when you get promoted to the Sunday company, how many people are in the Sunday company? Oh, um, um, ah, gosh. Maybe, mm. maybe 12? 12. And who of those 12 would people know Jennifer today? Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge. Was she in the Sunday company with me or was she in the main company with me? Um, let me see. Uh, I don't remember everybody that was in the Sunday company, but what I do remember was um, uh, Lorraine Newman's boyfriend was in my class. And I remember um, him saying, hey, do you want to come over to the house and write? And I was like, I wonder if he lives with her. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Well, then I find out she had just had her first baby. I go over and he goes. As if like this, I couldn't believe I was in her house. And he goes, hey, do you want to meet Lorraine? And I was like, yes. (laughs) And he takes me upstairs and she's laying in the bed breastfeeding. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I go, "Um, I could not believe that I was standing next to Lorraine Newman. I was such, so in awe. And she used to come see our shows. And she had taken me aside more than once and said, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And... I remember when I made it, she was one of the first calls that I, when I got on SNL, she was one of the first calls and she is a, such a beautiful person inside and out. I just love her. Um, so she meant the world to me. And I remember when I got the show, she took me to lunch and she goes, all right, how are you coping? <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? And she goes, Hey, listen, when I was there, you know, Everybody did drugs and no one was going to therapy. No one was, you know, uh, understood about antidepressants or anything like that. And she goes, how you doing? I go, I'm hanging by a thread. (laughs) You know, this was not a good time not to do drugs. (laughs) Um, But But going uh, back. So you're in the Sunday company. You're in the main company, which is also around 12 people or much. No, main company. There's like 30. 30. 35 or and something so like that. And so to get in, somebody has to pass away? Like, how do you get, how do you get in? <laughs> they have to give up their spot. Why would they give up their spot? Because, because they get an acting they, job? They might, yeah, they might have gotten a real acting job. But people were not getting plucked out of the groundlings back then, like they are now. So, okay, so at the point... I mean, there were amazing <clears throat> people in the company, like, you know, for a long time. Um, and, you know, like I remember... Let me see who was in there. Uh, Lisa Kudrow was in, and sh- and um, Kathy Griffin, Mike Hitchcock, Tim Bagley, Mindy Sterling, um, like people that so damn funny, and you know, but people weren't shopping at the Groundlings like they are now, you know, uh, for talent. So back then, um, you're there. You're in the Sunday Company. You're in the main company. Do you remember, like, as you're going there, do, do you know, you look back at the examples of who before you got to be on television or got to be in the film or... Well, this uh, is where I had an upper hand. I'll tell you. This, to me, was my dream. I was working at A&M Records. For me to be a groundling, I really thought my life is set. I have a great job, 
and here is where I will be creative. And it's like, all I have to do is meet a great guy. <laughs> and I have got a pretty full life. I mean, everybody I knew had free CDs. So I had a lot of friends. <laughs> I remember when I got SNL, there was some people at, at home in Philly. So no more free CDs. And I'm like, Jesus. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I would listen to the girls backstage in the dressing room. And a lot of times, you know, they talked about the business and how shitty it is and and what this one got or or that they didn't get up for this and they should have. And I used to think to myself, man, I'm so glad that this is enough for me. You know, like. I'm not an actress, <laughs> you know, but um, of course, then I started doing shows and some people did come. And then I had a, I had a commercial agent at the time who said, you know, this is not a fluke. You need to take this seriously and quit your job. And for me, like I had already made my dream come true. I did not imagine any bigger than that. And here I had a decent job and from where I came from. You know, I had a business card, you know, I mean, I was like putting it in every Mexican restaurant, the fishbowl at lunch. And I was just like <laughs> sending home free CDs with my business card. I mean, I'm like, I don't know if it gets any better, you know, and do I want to take this chance? But I really did remember thinking this, I was guided this. I can't think that. You know, I, I have to take this chance. So I quit my job at A&M and I started temping. And uh, I would say, and that's when my friend Mike Sweeney passed away of cancer during that time. And it was really a tough, tough time. Um, but I would say I was performing every Friday and Saturday night. And I was always in the shows, did pretty well. And... It was a year and a half I was doing it, and then I found out that um, the SNL was coming to see Chris Kattan, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that is wild! He's so lucky!" And I thought, "Well, maybe if," but I only had one thing in the show because he he had them come to a showcase for him, which was the Friday Night Late Show. So it's pretty much all him, and while he's changing, someone could do a a bit. Right. So I did this monologue and I thought maybe they'll remember me. Do you remember what the time. monologue was? Uh, yeah, it was not something I could get on SNL, believe it or not. I tried, uh, but it, I did do it on her own weekend update. Her name was Joy Lipton and she was a, um, a girl that uh, was selling um, lingerie and makeup that shouldn't have. And, you know, um but I did that and, and I, and it went well and I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I hope they remember me. So I was temping at Disney legal and my manager at the time called me and said, you know, what are you doing next, next Monday? And I was like, very funny. And he goes, I'm said, I'm temping. And he goes, no, you're flying to New York to audition for Saturday Night Live. And I screamed and you don't scream in Disney legal. <laughs> and... I couldn't believe it. You know, I just from the one monologue, mm -hmm. they didn't see you do anything else mm -hmm. but the one monologue. Mm -hmm. 
Then it was Marcy Klein in the audience. And she had me come out and... uh, You were on a Chris Kattan show. And one of the things about Chris Kattan that I always remember more than anything else, because he was a guy that was, in my mind, completely unapproachable. He was a guy who was... he, He was just... A person, and I could say this if we were sitting right here, uncomfortable almost in his own skin. And then when he got into a character, he was fully comfortable in his own skin. But off stage, it was almost like, uh, you know, the when you hear about people who stutter and then yeah. they start singing and then they can sing. Your neighbors. Yes. <laughs> but the thing was on this show, and I believe I was there for one of these shows either something maybe it wasn't the one you were on but they were in the i i i remember this the thing that blew me away about chris Catan when he got on snl every single character that he did did not speak a word of english <laughs> every character had no it was a it was a it was almost like he was worldwide comedy it's like mr bean everything mm-hmm. he did could be laughed at by people in Calcutta or Thai- Thailand or <laughs> I never anywhere. really thought about it like that. Every character, nothing, no words, nothing. The first six characters, whether it was the monkey or the guy with the chalkboard or whatever. So that always blew me away. I've never, all my career, I've never seen anything like it before. i never seen anything like it since. I've never known anybody who... And I don't know what that is or why that was, but that's what he focused in on, and that's what uh, what his lane was. But anyway, so and you he get, did it well. Yeah, and so you get flown to New York. I imagine that Chris was flown so, to New yeah, York too. So yeah, so it was uh, Will. And there were sixteen people Ferrell, that Chris, flew. And I and Jennifer Coolidge. So Jennifer Coolidge, Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan, yourself, and there were probably eight other people too. Or maybe no, 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 that was it. And then they only well, flew four. No, in. they 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 flew in thirty six from all over. Thirty six from all over the country. Now take our audience through the process of getting there. You you're put up, I believe, at that time in the Paramount, Paramount Hotel, which the, for those of you who don't know, the Paramount Hotel literally, as Henny Youngman would say, the rooms are so small that oh. you put the key in the door and you break the window. I'm telling you, and I stayed there for eight months, and it was like, it, it, it was just a perfect setup for a suicide. <laughs> it was such a sad place. So you're staying there, and so take us through the process of the test of SNL and how it works and how it is and how okay, they well, have you there the all day. Okay, well, four of us were thro- flown out, and then we had to do like four characters in, say, five characters in, in ten minutes or something like that. And so Will and I, no, well, I'm going to say we all auditioned and then I'll cut to. Now, Will was part of the Sunday company too? Yes. And, um, and what, what actually, what happened was, okay, we went out the first time and then, and then Lauren and, um, uh, who's his manager? I love him. I'm Bernie Brillstein. Bernie Brist- Brillstein. The late Bernie Ber- Brillstein. The late, great Bernie Brillstein. I read his book and I just loved it. And I was able to tell him that while he was alive. Um, they came out and they were in the audience at the Groundlings. And so they saw the regular show, right, that we were doing. And um, where Marcy had just seen Chris's showcase. And so I remember Mindy Sterling was sitting in back of Bernie Brillstein and she took me uh, she came running back after I was on, you know, after the show and she goes, 
Bernie Brillstein leaned into Lauren Michaels and said, she pops like Gilda. I go, get the fuck out of here. And I'll never, ever forget that. It was so nice to when I finally did meet him. I go, I heard what you said in the others. Of course, he didn't remember. Um, But I said, I could not have had for all my lifetime because there was no one that I related to more than Gilda Radner's comedy when she was on SNL. Like that is what I related to so much and i just loved her well because a lot of your weekend updates uh uh, jumping ahead a little bit i want to keep staying here but see i remember one sketch you were on top of a desk and some jumper with shorts and that had like big openings around the shorts and you had your ass and Quinn's face that was the joy lipton character that i said they saw me do at groundlings wow that was that was, I mean... Yeah, that was the girl who should not have been wearing lingerie. Yes. Um, so, but keep going. So, the test, so, so you're going to 30 Rock after you stay overnight. You're talking a little bit with Will and those people, but you're going in. And do you think to yourself, I'm going to get this? Or do no. you think to yourself, hey, no, I'm no, just no, happy I'm to No, no, no. I'm thinking I'm going to tell my grandchildren that I auditioned for Saturday Night Live. And I remember when it was my turn to go in, there was a guy who walked out in front of, you know, walked out and he goes get ready. They don't laugh. And I was, it was a wonderful thing that he said to me because I did not expect any laughter. And, and it is a wonderful thing because there's only the cameraman you're, you're performing on the stage that the band performs on normally. Correct. Yeah, It's, and there's a cameraman and there's a sound guy. And there's there's like four people, four people. Sometimes in these days now, Lauren will invite a little more writers in and there could be as many as 15 to 20 or more off of the side. But normally there's very little. There was four people and it was dark and it made it easy. And all I remember was trying so hard to make my transitions less than three seconds. You know, because you take a wig off, you put a wig on or you take a piece of clothing off or you grab a prop. But I just knew that not to depend on any, you know, just make it. The transition seamless, you know, um, and I, I, you know, it went, I thought, well, how did you know? Because the guy said no one laughs and I looked and I saw Lauren laughing ever so slightly, which is, which is, uh, something a lot of people don't see. Yeah. And I just was like, I left, like I was so happy because you know, I saw him laugh a little bit and, you know, and all you can do is your best. And so I did. And then we went back home and, uh, then 11 people from all over from that 36 got called back and it was Will and I and Chris and went back and Will and I were just, and then this was a shorter audition with less characters. But you have to do different characters. Right. And so Will and I were just at the Paramount um, watching each other's, you know. So you guys ran your sets yeah. against each other. Yeah, we just like watched each other sets, and we just you know. And did you guys did make notes on each other's sets and what could be better, or what could be worse, or? No, it was really just doing it in front of somebody, you know. Um, and I remember Chris saying he wasn't even practicing or rehearsing or anything. He's like, "Come on, you guys, would you just let's go to dinner?" <laughs> and then, you know, but we were like. Totally stick it to it. And then we all went to dinner and I ended up getting food poisoning and just threw up all night 
long. There was no sleep. My eyes, the blood vessels broke in my eyes. You ever see somebody it looks like their eye is bleeding? Yes. Well, they broke all in my face and in my eyes. It was horrendous. And when I went in the next day to the makeup department, they went, oh, my God, honey, what happened? I mean, my face looked like, and I just said, just do what you can, please. <laughs> and so the lights were dark. I was so grateful for that. And all I worried about, because they really covered up, you know, the, all broken blood vessels all over my face from heaving. And, and um, I just, you know, and, and your adrenaline. It didn't matter that I'd thrown up all night and it didn't matter that I had no sleep. It's almost like the adrenaline was so kicked in and I did my thing and then I left and then came back home. I thought I did my best. Did you think I got this? No, no. And then I went back to LA and, uh, um, and then like maybe two weeks later, Lauren said, we got a call that Lauren wanted to see Will and I at his office in Paramount. So, I remember buying a pink dress that I really couldn't afford. But and he wanted to see you both individually. Yeah. I was first. So I went in and um, I now, was just... now, now, normally when Lauren meets with somebody, uh, from what I've heard from a few people, is that there's really not a lot of words spoken. No. It's almost like he wants to just feel your energy yes. in the room with him. Yes. It's very awkward because... You're not sure what he wants and you want him to be happy with you, you know? And So before you go in the me with Lauren, are you at least thinking to yourself, okay, now I know I can get this and I'm going to get this. I just got to go in. I thought this is a good sign, but, um, I, it's probably just another step and so I went in and he's like, Sherry, we'd like you to come to New York. And he was quiet. And I was like, um, to, to shop, <laughs> um, uh, to hang out. Um, uh, and he goes, and you know, you'll have to move. And, um, and I'm not saying anything. And I, like, I want him to say the words. Like, why isn't he saying the words? And I just thought that. Maybe I didn't get it. I have to move and they're going to try me out, you know, and so how did the meeting end? And then I just, I, I think I had gotten it, you know, but those words weren't said. And I guess I figured I'll find out later. It's a stupid person that asks a question. <laughs> I'll find out later. I've done that so many times where it's like, I'm so scared to ask a question that I'm just like, uh, you know, I'll wait till later and find out. I'll call somebody. Okay. And so you get out. You probably wait in your car for Will to no, get no, no. done. I, I went behind the desk and hugged him and he was not ready for that. And I was like, you know, I really hugged him. He's like, okay. <laughs> um so you go and so will has his meeting so then i walked out and there was will and he goes what happened and i didn't want to ruin it for him you know i didn't want to spoil his surprise yeah. so i just go he just asked more questions <laughs> and then i went in and i 
waited for him and he walked out and, um, he didn't say a word and we just held our, held hands and walked out, not said a word to the parking lot. By the time we got to our cars, we just started jumping up and down and screaming and we both, and then we pulled over in our cars to call our dads oh. on the payphone. On the payphone. Awesome. But you still didn't really understand if you'd gotten it or not, had did you? Or you? No, but then we kind of knew, you know, but even though I said, did he say the words to you? Like you got it? And Will had done this thing where he brought in a case of fake cash. <laughs> and, he goes, and you know what he said to me? He goes, man, that cash thing wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, he goes he did not laugh and i go and i go well, at least you didn't hug him <laughs> could you imagine he says you know what those two kids know him with the cash her with the hug you know they're I not to be the person out. who brought the fake cash and hugged them yeah right right <laughs> So you find out you get the show how? I mean, officially, how do you find out? Uh, I just knew because then Marcy Klein called. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, it, and you were talking earlier about, like, Daryl and, and being emotionally ready for it. I, the funny thing is what I realized was I truly was ready for it work-wise like the groundlings and and having to write so much by myself because I was working at AM Records and all that stuff uh, was the perfect preparation for this. Um, you know, thank God for the writing, you know, and all that I, you know, I really, because what you don't know is he said to me in the meeting, he goes, now we're going to give you your own office because we'd like you to write. And I was like, so flattered. I was so flattered and I was like, oh my God, what a statement that is. Little do I know that I'm going to have to write for nothing, you know, and little did I know that I will be writing and competing against the other writers. Like that was, I, I was amazed at that. I was truly, and that is where the pressure comes in yeah, truly <laughs> because you are auditioning every week for a show you already got you're auditioning and you're competing against writers i never saw myself competing against the other cast members and i should explain to the audience what sherry means is that so there's just there's there's all different kinds of people at snl there are writers who are just hired to write and when you're hired as a cast member on the show whether you like to know it or not you are hired as a writer performer and so they want you to write now you have two ways you can write you can write and collaborate with the writers who are just there for writing and then as far as navigation you don't have to worry as much because they're fighting just as much for your sketch 
as you are. You but just, they also then write their own sketch where their name is first. And I correct. remember reading Bunny Bunny and Alan Zweibel, and it seems like it's been the same ever since. You are lucky as an actor if you find someone who will collaborate with you. And people at home would think, well, why wouldn't anybody want to write with, with one of the cast members? If they, if you, they don't have to, um, a lot of writers would like to write from their own, you know, um, from their own concepts, you know, uh, and what they want to write. They don't want to write for you necessarily. So you are at their mercy of being cast and just say, you never get cast for whatever reason. I remember the, when I wrote, uh, leg up the first thing with Steve Korn and Molly and I Steve wrote Korn, it. Wonderful, 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 right? Here's like a real straight guy's guy who could write well for a woman. And then after that, it the, my writing co- um, partner I would say besides Will and us writing the cheerleaders and and uh, writing morning latte whatever we did together was um, Matt Piedmont and great, my great own writer. characters yeah uh, Matt would write and I guess he was my you know Alan's Y Bell back then because you know I remember having a meeting with Lauren and he goes. Sherry, are the writers writing for you? And I said, you know, n- not really. Well, Gildy used to bake cookies if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. Like, what do you say to that? And I was just like, oh, boy. Not a baker. Did you bring him gifts the next the next week? <laughs> the, oh, the writers? Yeah. Fuck no. <laughs> You know, it was kind of like, all right, you know, I guess see, it's not, you know, I don't think things are going to get better as far to, as far as being written see, for wanna, by the writers. See, I want to share with you uh, the perception of a guy who was there with two cast members at the time with one cast member gone up. I was there with Jim Brewer and I was there with Daryl Hammond. And the next year uh, I was fortunate enough to work with Tracy Morgan to get him on the show with his talent and mine. And my perception and sitting around with those three people was, and they were in the sausage factory with you. Sherry O'Terry gets on all the time. Mm. And I don't think there's anybody in the country that would say that you were lacking in stage time on Saturday Night Live. Well, I think because I wasn't cast much. So if my stuff that I wrote didn't get in, you know, um, it wasn't like I could depend on being cast. You know, during, because it was like to the read through, everybody looks to see what they're cast in, you know, so they, they, they're ready for that sketch to come up. And I didn't have, you know, much where I was, but I worked really hard to get on and I was lucky that I got on and was able, you know, to get my stuff across. But that is the, that was like the hard thing there. And, and, you know, everybody suffered from, because everybody you know, it's like everybody wants to to be on and every writer wants to get their, their stuff on. And every week there's no guarantees of anything. And I remember when I think my second or third year I did Just Shoot Me, I fell and I came out to L.A. And, and to film it. I was like amazed. I felt like I came from kind of... Um, uh, comedy third world into, you know, 
lush, beautiful. People are like, Miss O'Terry, what would you like in your eggs? I go, what's your angle? <laughs> what's your angle? You know? Uh, and, and knowing that I was going to be in the show, no matter what, it made me almost want to cry. I'm like, wow, this is a really funny line. And wow, I'm going to be in the show no matter what. And the and that feeling of knowing that was and the way that they worked you show up at 10 or whatever i was just like this is amazing what a, a great deal one of the things that uh, also b blew me away about being there amongst these cast members i believe it was spades last year i believe he carried over to that year and and it was will's first year and Three people who had no attachment, it seemed, out in the world. They had no emotion, it seemed, one way or the other through that hallways, whether they got on or they didn't mm. get on or whatever happened. And it was Spade, Norm MacDonald, and Will Ferrell. It felt to me like... Well, the thing is, is Will was going to get on no matter what, you know, because not only did he write for himself, but he was written for every week. So, and you know what, even at the Groundlings, he was not one to panic. Um, and do you think that's a quality that you would recommend to actors and actresses to have like to, Oh know? my God. Yes. But it depends on, you know, where you're coming from. That's like almost like a childhood thing. Um, how you're wired, how you're made. And, and it's, um, like once you get there and if somebody said to me, if you could give yourself any advice, for when you first started SNL, what would you have said? And I say, please enjoy yourself. Take a deep breath and enjoy yourself. You're meant to be here. But I feel like from my background, I always questioned whether, like, you know, I deserve to be there. In, in And creative-wise, I knew that I could do it, but... It was hard for me emotionally because, you know, I didn't, uh, I just didn't have the foundation, um, I would say mentally to believe that it was mine and that, um, But I was always like a nervous person and a worrier. You know? I never saw that in you in those hallways. Well, that's good. You should see me in my dressing room. But <laughs> Hence that's the name Otiri. <laughs> but that's the place to have those emotions in the closed door in the dressing room. Well, downstairs, I was always really just thinking about going through... Another you know. thing that I wanted to share about you that to, to everybody here is that I never saw you fuck up. And even if you fucked up, no one would ever know that you fucked up. I, I never saw, I, it was like, there was, when you did something in dress, if you were in dress rehearsal doing a character that was your character, the chances of you not showing up in the live show to me were slim and none and slim left town. You were just money every uh, time. You should have seen the sketch that Molly and I wrote called Card Store. 
<laughs> you know what's so funny was we wrote this sketch these two women that own a card store and i remember it went so bad so bad in dress that we were almost laughing during it and you know like i never broke or anything like that but we walked in and we just laughed and we looked at the board and you know you would always see the 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 sketch titles titles of the sketch that didn't make it were all the way to that's right the, in between right. shows lauren would meet with the writers and the cast i don't know if at the time it was uh with them as well all in his office sitting around like this office would fit yeah. like 50 people in there and the show was all set up <clears throat> by the cards that's right and you would tell index you cards. index cards t- stuck with a stuck stick and pin. then you had commercial in yeah. between and i remember we just walked in we cracked up card store could not have been further to the left <laughs> and what we did was we like i think one of us took it down and we put it under lauren's um dvd player or it wasn't dvds tape player underneath it and for the whole five years, whenever one of us sat near that uh, DVD, I mean, that you know, tape player, I would always pull out the <laughs> card and for five years and show it to Molly across the room and she'd start laughing. <laughs> card store. <laughs> it's coming back. It's coming back. Um, but you know what? When I they did my best of, they said, you know, what about bloopers? We had a hard time finding bloopers. And I can remember the bloopers. Uh no, because coming from the Groundlings, for me, I really stuck by the rules. And you don't break. And I remember loving Carol Burnett, but I did not like when they broke. Because I almost felt like, no, I want to see the whole sketch. I want to see the sketch. I don't want to see you laughing. Because I was so into it. And, you know, and we knew that you never break on SNL. That's what we knew when we came in the beginning. And then it's I so just weird saw to say that because that Chris, Farley, Chris Farley's whole thing was, I mean, you couldn't. Uh, you weren't allowed to. And then I saw people starting to break. And then I knew that it was now okay to break. It was, you know, because they would never have broken again if it wasn't okay to break. And you cannot break if you... If you can, if something happens, one time Will and I were doing a um, uh, morning latte, and we were in dress, and Lauren and he um, and Jerry Seinfeld was coming on, and he wrote a book. It was when the when the the zone came out, and he wrote a book comparable to that called The Realm. And Will at one point, you know, opens his arm with the books in his hand, and it smacks me in the head, and I completely forgot about it. Well, it smacked me so hard in the head that. Um, the audience went, oh, <laughs> and I started laughing. I'm telling you, I was seeing stars. <laughs> I started laughing. That was like the dress show. And I couldn't contain. He started saying my ma. I couldn't get it back. <laughs> and he started saying my lines. And he was like, you know what I can tell you want to say right now? <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. You are thinking I and tears started coming. Real tears started coming down my face. Um <laughs> And but that was in the dress room, and the only other time did that show get on air? Yes, that sketch. Um, yeah. But I didn't make that. You know, okay. like I knew the hit was coming. And the other time was when Chris Kattan and I were doing the sex couple. The, you know, uh, we were in uh, in a lodge and we're doing the whole you know sex thing where we're getting hot and heavy. And he puts me up 
on these horns from a <laughs> like a, a deer that was shot. And I'm I'm stand up there and my legs are up. And what I don't know in dress and and I look off and the audience is like roaring. They're laughing and I'm thinking, damn, I didn't know this funny this was that funny. And here my shirt was completely open. <laughs> I had no idea. Thank goodness. And I usually always wear a bra, but I remember thinking I was in a rush. I almost didn't wear a bra. And that's not like me. Thank God. <laughs> because I didn't feel it. I didn't know. And I was looking off to the side. And I knew when they were laughing that hard, don't move. Do not move. This is killing. And here. And then I saw Chris. And then Chris comes up and closes my shirt. And I was like, oh, and I felt so stupid. I was so embarrassed. But they didn't even put that on my best of as a blooper. Because they go, sure, that would like be the only one or something. Like that. But I heard Chris Kattan has it on his best of. Little bastard. <laughs> it wasn't his blooper. It was mine. <laughs> but, uh, well, I think at the Groundlings, we were just very, um, it was really structured. And I totally believed in, you know, commitment. And that's what I love about the Groundlings. It's, you know, you commit. And even when you're dying, you commit. And I admire that when I see it in other people, you know. Tell me something that Lauren Michaels told you throughout the five years that stuck with you. And tell me something that he didn't tell you that stuck with you. Well, he never said good job, which I would have killed for. It's kind of like, you know, you just want his approval. And the more someone holds back their approval... The more you need it, it's like, you know, you're starving and, you know, I, I'm sure people that have it more together mentally aren't starving as maybe as much as I was. <laughs> um, I would say not mentally, but emotionally. Um, but, you know, the only thing I would get was when I saw him laugh in when we were in read through if I did something and he laughed, it was like a shot of adrenaline all through my body, seeing him laugh. You know, it's, I never wanted somebody's approval so much. And, uh, let's see. So, you know, that I remember one time passing him, passing Daryl in the, in the hallway and he goes, Daryl, good job. And, I was like a child. I was like, lucky duck, <laughs> you know? Um, and one, what did he say? He didn't say much. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to tell you something he said that, you know, I would have loved to have had him said more to me, something, um, yeah, I can't, I, I can't think of anything he said. I don't think I'm the only one. And I think when, you, you know, his way of like, when you're getting on, that's, that's what you have to interpret that as he yeah, thinks you're doing a good job. And one of the things I always say to anybody who's been on the show or who's on the show that I've worked with or people who I haven't worked with, the man has produced a television show for 40 years I defy anybody to name any show that's been on for 40 years. The history of television 
what it started in the 50s so and he's been doing television 40 years of that 40 of 65 years and and i consider and my relationship with lauren is i've never been a guy who like let's do lunch or let's hang out or let's do whatever and but i wanted to say was is that i think his way of uh doing things is you know, when you're on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, when you're being invited to that dinner at Spago or wherever it is. Or, I remember being invited to the inaugural, President Clinton's inaugural. Yeah. And, you know, when those things are happening, I took my dad to the Kentucky Derby, took my stepmom to the inaugural. And it was just like, and then being able to have my family take the train up, it was, you know, it wasn't just for me, it was for everybody. And... You know, it, and I also think about the stage. I remember I would go to the sometimes on a Sunday or when we had a hiatus, I would go to the uh, Museum of Television and Broadcasting and I would look up old shows. And I remember seeing Sid Caesar, your show of shows and Imogene Coca. And I'd love to do that story. I mean, because that was like you, you're the first live comedy show. Your show of shows. Yeah. That incorporated sketch i believe yeah um and i used to watch those and because uh, i just got into the history of of that studio and um yeah it was to say it was surreal it was bigger than i had ever imagined you know so but as i say you know when you talk about I relate to so many of those people that when you get it too you have no idea you're not totally some are not totally equipped to manage um, the the pressure. Um, and that's why I say my only regret is that I didn't in, allow myself to enjoy it more. I am the luckiest girl in the world to have gotten to do all those characters and, you know, be a part of history with this show. And they were all brilliant. What I like to do now is I like to sort of wrap up with some, I'm going to mention some things. It could be a sketch. It could be a person. It could be something. And, and just something that comes to mind that means something to you. I'll start with Betty White. So I worked with on Hot in Cleveland. I wasn't invited to the um, show that she hosted. But I did get to do Hot in Cle Cleveland. And, oh, my God, with everything that you think, she is in more. I was really funny because we'd be in, she uh, had an assistant and the girls were so supportive. Well, uh, they're, they're, they're supportive of each other. It was one of the best environments I'd ever been in. And, um, Betty, uh, when she wouldn't remember her line and there would just be a real long pause and then she just knew it was her line because no, no one was saying she would just go, oh. she called her assistant nurse and she would just go, nurse <laughs> nurse <laughs> and she would yell the line um man what <laughs> i thought i said to the girls you know wendy malik what a doll and valerie and i was just like this is such a wonderful environment and they're all so appreciative too you know absolutely keenan ivory wayans i absolutely love him because what he'd started with in Living Color, I watched that show all the time. And he directed 
scary movie. And when I did, I just had to meet him. I didn't even have to audition. And it was really funny because I'd done so many weird characters on the show that if I did a movie, it was always for a quirky looking person. And like I was kind of mimicking Courtney Cox's character who was so pretty, you know, and it was like neat and not to be doing, you know, like a, a troll of some kind or, you know, something crazy. Um, so I met him and he was probably one of the best directors. I enjoyed him. I enjoyed watching him. He was so kind and trusted my instincts. Like the guy that played my camera guy had no lines through the whole movie, but you know, on our downtime, he would help me rehearse. And then I would like, say, you should say this, you should say this. And then, uh, we would do it in front of Keenan and I would say, Keenan, could you, we've been rehearsing? Could, could I, could we do a rehearsal? And I'm telling you, there wasn't one thing that I did it. He said, no. <laughs> and this guy ended up having all these lines because we worked so well together and he was just so, so supportive and wonderful um, and smart and handsome. And he smelled good. All right, I'm going to stop. Uh, Mike Myers. Uh, he was on the show and I was very excited about him being on the show because I loved his characters you know, watched him this whole time, but he was just very, very quiet. And I remember I wrote a, uh, Rita Del Vecchio, the Italian woman of fortune. I had, I wrote him in the team. I think I had him as a priest, maybe I'm not sure, but, um, the scene didn't get it. I, I, you know, I didn't, he was very, very quiet and kept to himself, but I remember his wife was very warm. Jim Carrey. Um, that was probably one of the best shows ever of my five years on SNL. Um, from beginning to end, his sketches were flawless. And I didn't see him now, but I just heard he was flawless again. And I remember him saying, Sherry, I have to do the cheerleaders. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And so we wrote cheerleaders for him. And uh, I just remember watching it in dress. I saw it. I went upstairs in between just to see how it looked on television. And there was a thing where I was pulling, putting a pump down and they were making their asses uh, look like balloons. And when I pumped, their ass went up. Pumped again, their ass went up higher. And then what I saw was Jim was just going like this, not in sync with the lever and so i just can't remember i remember running down and opening knocking on jim's door and i go jim um just uh let me see raise your ass with each pump <laughs> and he's like sure and i remember and he goes got it and then i and he was like a kid he's like all right got it and then i ran out and i just stopped myself i just ran into jim carrey and said <laughs> Raise your ass with each pump. <laughs> like we were adults being children. And um, then I have to say, uh, and he did, and talk about Steve Korn. Steve Korn had brought a sketch in so many times that got turned down. And it was Lifeguard of a Jacuzzi. And so many times it got turned down. And I just have to give it to him because he, I remember Jim did the show. And once you put a sketch up once, twice, no one wants to hear it again. 
right? It's very, very hard. Well, this was like, I don't know how many times that jacuzzi sketch had been up. Jim wanted it. And I remember watching it in rehearsal. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I was crying. It was and that th- I just thought to mouth myself, to serendipity. This was like so great. You know, he had to wait and wait in the humiliation. And then like one of the best guys decides to do it and kills it. And I just love Steve for sticking with it. One of the hard things to do there, you know, because people are like so over things very quickly. Persistence. And, right. And uh, and then that summer, Jim had invited Will over and Will and I over to his house. And he had some fancy pants people there. And um and after dinner, I said, do you mind if I look, look around? And he said, no, go ahead. So I was looking all around the house. I went into this room and I saw a life-size glass enclosed of the mask from the mask, you know, the, um, the movie. costume. And then I looked next to it and it was um, the Joker. Yeah. No, yeah the Joker. And then I looked and it was Ace Ventura. And then... There was another one. And then I looked and there was the cheerleader uniform. And I am telling you one of those moments I'll never, ever forget. Like that he put that on par with all of those things. And I ran out and said, Jim, well, first I saw Will and I go, Will, you got to see this. I grabbed him and I took him into the room and he looked and he goes, oh my gosh. And... It was, I'm telling you, that was a thrill. That was a thrill. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Larry David. Um, oh, my gosh. I remember when he called me at home. Here's one of those things where you thought you'll ask questions later. Because I was so excited that he called me at home. I really wasn't listening. <laughs> and he was like, well, okay, what we're going to do is we're thinking of you, you know, you babysit this kid and, uh, you know, there's, uh, you're trying to stop me from going into use the bathroom at this house. And, uh, the kid's got a big penis and I'm just, I'm listening to him like as if he's on stage and entertaining me. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> he's good, you know? Uh, and I was so nervous and excited, did not listen. Well, I show up on the set. And I'm waiting desperately for paper because no script came. Not one stitch of paper came before I even got there. And I'm waiting and I'm like calling my my agent. I'm like, hey, how about a fax? (laughs) I kill for a fax. Anything? And he's like, "Uh, yeah, not yet, Cher. I'm sure you'll get a beat sheet or whatever. And then I show up, still nothing. And I was so scared. And I said to Jeff Garland, I go, hey, Jeff. Jeff, was so Jeff sweet. Garland, the co-creator and yeah. executive producer. I go, um, hey, is there going to be like a script coming out soon? My hair and makeup's being done. Still nothing. And then I'm starting to shake where you can see it. And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm not ready for this. And, but I was so afraid to ask. So... I'm telling you, that that phone call was all the information I got, and I didn't even listen. So he goes, oh, and I'm literally shaking. And he goes, you all right? You know, and I go, oh, sure. <laughs> and he goes, um, all right, in this scene, uh, you're going to just try and make me not, not you're not going to let me get into the bathroom. I'm going to try and use the bathroom. And 
direction. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going like, right before, I go, do I succeed? <laughs> do I? Like, you don't know how much to push, what to. And I am telling you, I was never, ever so nervous in my life. Um, I wish I had a heads up, but I could not prepare a single thing. And uh, as the show went on, I got the hang of it a little more. But still, I like to prepare. In, uh, improv is not was not my favorite thing at the Groundlings. I have to say sketch and character and writing were my favorite things. Improv, you know, you're supposed to trust yourself. I can't do that shit. I can't trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want a plan. <laughs> Adam Sandler. Um, hmm. I met him at a party that was at Paramount. And I'd been on the show. And I was standing at a table. And remember Chris Farley coming over. And he was just a beaming light of love. He was like, oh, man, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. And I was just smiling from ear to ear. The whole t He never swayed from his personality of being, you know, the most beautiful light. And I remember Adam, I was, and Adam was standing next to him. He wasn't really saying anything. But, you know, when Chris was doing his thing, he was doing his thing. And then I was standing at a table and I heard someone in back of me and he goes, uh, I think there's enough heat around you. <laughs> and I turned around. It was him. And I go, what? He goes, I think there's enough heat around you. <laughs> and I had no idea what he meant. And I wasn't even sure exactly maybe what he was saying. But and I went, hi, <laughs> I'm Sherry. And, and then I would see him at, him at some parties, but, you know, he would be sitting with a bunch of people and I didn't know what to say or anything like that. Um, I really, I guess, didn't meet him or really talk to him till this movie. And, uh, yeah, so. Cool. I got to know him, you know, more. On his movie. Now, Barbara Walters was a big character of yours, and recently you got to do her final episode of The View. Barbara Walters. I remember, and this is something I've learned to thank for. Um, I got, I remember um, Tim Hurley, he came down my first year of SNL, and he's like, uh, Lauren wants you to do Barbara Walters. And, you know, I was naive and I'm just thinking, oh, how that's so sweet. How flattering. And I go, hey, listen, I don't do impressions. Believe me, <laughs> I would suck. Anybody else is going to be better. And then he came down like again the next day and he goes, hey, Lauren really wants you to do Barbara Walters. And I was like, oh, it's so sweet. But listen, dude, I've got nothing on her. I do not do impressions. And I'm sure somebody else might have a better might have at least a take. And then the next day he comes down and he goes, um, Sherry, Lauren, and, and I go, uh, and he goes, no, uh, Sherry, you don't understand. You're going to be doing Barbara Walters, you know? And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And he's like, we really weren't asking. 
Like he was like he's like well leaned into me and he said, Sherry, he's really not asking. <laughs> and I go, Oh, oh, I thought you were asking. And he goes, No, he's not. <laughs> and so then I remember thinking, Oh shit. And I just started watching tapes over because I just thought to myself, Gilda Ratner did her so well and I'm never gonna be able to so I just tried to do a different take on it and uh it was really hard because I grew up watching her and especially you know her specials and everything like that and it's hard because she's so good at what she does but what I what I gathered from her in the beginning was I started looking at her style which I should have been studying more her mannerism but she would give people in in an interview three compliments and then she would go in for the kill. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful way to, I watched her make people's guards come down. She would say, you're like, you're a concert pianist. You're an Emmy nominated for the TV film, uh, white girl, black boy, uh, and you're a hip hop mogul. Why the porn? <laughs> you know, so what she would do was she would compliment, but specific compliments. They weren't just like, you're such a great actress. And nobody, an actor loves it when they feel understood, when someone knows more than what everybody knows about, you know. Um, and she would really gain their trust. And it was only till after she gained their trust and you could tell her feeling it out that she would go in. It's been said about you. And I quote, which I loved because when she does that, it's not her saying it, you know, it's like on Andy Cohen on watch what happens live. Uh, Rebecca from Illinois says, you know, and it just, cause I said that when I was on uh, Andy's show, I go, thank God it's Rebecca from Illinois and not you because I'm, my feelings might get hurt, you know, <laughs> But she did, she did that. And it's been said about you. And I quote, when I started doing her on the show, it's almost like I got to understand how to do her as I went. And really it was just the accent that she had. Uh, and I was started, I would write, when I would write Barbara, I would write ER and UR because she would say, cursed, first, worst person. And that's how I got the accent, you know, her little bit of an accent um, or speech impediment. Uh, and then it was really her mannerisms and the way she directed questions and that I started doing. And I had more fun doing her than I could have ever imagined. And the funniest thing is like, you know, Lorne believed that I could do it. And I have him to thank for all that, all the fun that I had doing her and then being able, and then the, and being able to be on her last day was such a highlight of my Where life. Where you interviewed her as her. Yeah. They called me and they said, do you have any ideas? Um, well, first I've got to give props to my cousin, Mary from Jersey, who actually called the show and said, um, I heard Barbara's leaving. I think my cousin Sherry should do the show. Um, and uh and that's how i got it so thank you mary um but she's uh he said do you have any ideas and i go oh my god ever since i heard the announcement that she's leaving 
Like I have three different ideas, but I think the one I'd really like to do most is being her, interviewing her. And I didn't know what to expect. Um, I wrote it with one of the writers and it was, uh, I just truly did not. She was so gracious and leaned over and said, thank you for doing this. And I, it was a wonderful experience. And she actually said, she looked at her monitor. We were both sitting across from each other, knees to knees. And she looks at her monitor and she sees, and she said, my hair is a mess. And then immediately the hairdresser runs over and then he goes, oh, Barbara, that's Sherry's monitor. <laughs> well, she started cracking up. If you could have seen like Barbara Walters crack up at herself, I was so happy because that's how we started, you know? And I'm like, and I keep making her laugh. I'm like, thanks a lot. She's, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg was such a funny story because I remember he was the musical guest and I was wanting so bad to do a sketch with him as Barbara Walters, you know? Uh, and I remember I wrote the sketch and we did it in read through. And one of the writers said, you are so crazy for, you know, putting him in a sketch. You don't know if he's going to want to do it. You don't know if he's going to show up. You don't know if he's going to be able to, you know, um, when Snoop, this when off. Snoop, was because at Snoop SNL, had never acted that I ever saw Never before. acted. And when he was at SNL, literally you'd walk past his dressing room and you'd get a contact high. Um, yeah. And then I wrote it and it got in to the show. And I could not have been more excited. I was so proud of it. And um, then Snoop comes in the next day to do a, a, a rehearsal uh, sound check. And he wants to see me. So I go down <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was, I was high by the time I left. <laughs> and it was funny. It was very dark and was smoke filled. And there was a woman corn rowing his hair. And then when I walked in, and all the smoke and everything goes, I'm sorry, I hope you don't mind. And I go, oh, no, not at all. But she's going to keep doing my hair. <laughs> and I went, and I'm thinking he's talking about the smoke. <laughs> yeah, I really am uh, appalled <laughs> at these cornrows <laughs> while I'm trying to meet with you. So he, um, we, you know, he's like, this is really funny, man. And I love that he, lo you know, he loved it. And we did a rehearsal that day and everybody was like, he's going to pull out, Sherry. What do you see? Or he's not going to do it. Or, you know, they're not taking this seriously, you know. Um, and I just said, I'm ready. I'm ready. It, you know, I really wasn't. I was really putting all my eggs in that basket because that's all I had in. And uh, so they put us at the dress show, the very last sketch, which, which means which? they don't, the dress show is where they put on 11 sketches and like three get cut That's for right. the air show. Sometimes five. Sometimes five. And so. And the last sketch. And the, the last go rehearsal. in the dress show is the one that they don't hold out hope for. That's correct. So we were last in dress and I'm like, all right. And I remember doing it. He was flawless with what I wanted him to do flawless and funny the funny thing was all through the week he would say to me he would see me in the hallway and he goes hey Shara could you put uh, one of my cousins in the sketch and I'm like oh shit and I go uh, uh 
yeah, Snoop. Yeah. <laughs> and then I swear to you, the next day, hey, sure, could you put my other cousin um, in the sketch? And I'm just like, uh, uh, sure. And then it was the day of the show. Sherry, could you put my other cousin in there? And I'm like, what? And I'm thinking, how the fuck am I going to do this? So what I did was I had them all standing in back of us while we were sitting down being interviewed. And I say, Snoop, um, with your, your bodyguards here, I feel very safe. From what? I don't know. <laughs> and it was perfect. I said, just dress those guys in suits and tell them to put their hands behind their backs. <laughs> you know? And it worked out perfectly. And he was flawless. And then um, after, after the sketch, I walked off and he walked off and we just ran into each other's arms. Like, here's a Snoop, like, tough guy and everything like that. And we were, like, smiling and laughing. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so happy. And and he lifted me up, and then here we go in to see what's on the uh, on the main show, how it's set up. We were the first sketch out. Incredible. And it was one of those things where, you know, I mean, I imagine it was maybe how, like, Steve Korn felt when he got, you know, it was just no one's holding out hope, you know, and you know it's, like, uphill. And I barely had a writer that wanted even to write with me. I wrote it, and then... The guy I was writing with bailed. You know, I this thing I remember about the sketch so vividly was you as Barbara picking up your pocketbook from the ground and putting it next to you and holding it tight. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that was I didn't do it in dress. We, it wasn't rehearsed. And I remember because the sketch went so well that they didn't get it on camera on the air show and Beth McCarthy afterwards the said, director yeah Beth uh, who's amazing I love her she's amazing she runs up to me after she goes what did you do what did you do and I go I picked up my purse she goes but you didn't do that I go I know I didn't rehearse it it just felt right in the moment when she was looking back at the, the bodyguards you know and I just kind of leaned down and picked it up <laughs> thinking it was like this small move but the camera didn't catch it but the audience did. Um, and I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> awesome. Okay, final roundup here. Tell me about your biggest disappointment that ultimately led to something great. There was a movie that I really, really wanted. And, and I auditioned for it. And my friends were producing. And I auditioned for it like twice. And the director did not want me. It was like... Scandinavian, this guy, and and didn't know who I was or anything like that. But uh, he was dead set against me. Never saw the show, nothing. And I wanted it so bad because I loved this script. And so they give it to another girl, and then I get the script, Scary Movie. And this other script I felt was like, you know, it was very interesting and kind of cerebral and, 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 and I thought, wow, what a great thing for me to do. That's such a departure from what I do on SNL. And then when I, you know, got the scary movie script, I was like, you know, I wasn't feeling excited about it. And really I hadn't read the script. I just read the, you know, my part. And, and then after Keenan and I met and I got it, I was flying out and I was, sitting with the girl who got the part in the other movie. And then she was up one up for me, thank God. 
And she goes, and she came back and introduced herself. And she said, I'm such a big fan. I don't even know if she thought you knew if I was up for it or anything. And I was just like, oh, so nice to meet you. And, and, and then I, we're all staying in the same hotel. Oh. And then my old boyfriend was also in this movie and in this hotel. And my two friends that were producing it were in this hotel. And it was... It was really like, oh my God, I, this is rough. This is rough. And then, and everybody's partying in the, you know, the downstairs, the, the regal beagle. And so I started doing, you know, this, the movie, scary movie. And from day one, I started having so much fun and I started watching scenes and I started seeing how good they were. And um, loved my part, loved what Keenan was letting me do with it as well, loved the way he was directing everybody. And I was like, this is kind of funnier than I was thinking. And which and project became I will the not biggest? Say, I will not no, but say which what project, the project became the biggest. Well, that one didn't even get released, it went straight to DVD. And even a good friend of mine, another great, great friend of mine, like at the time, Jeff Goldblum was in it too. And it never, and I ended up, well, you wanted to talk about things happen sometimes so disappointing and they turn out for the best. I ended up feeling like the luckiest girl in the world to be a part of that movie, to be a part of, you know, everybody that I worked with that, and I still have on my wall for the sales of it with the two masks, yes, you know, um, but that was a, you know, a, a huge disappointment that turned into one of the best things that could have happened. Fantastic. Your proudest moment in show business. Urban Being on the here. cover of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Like, <laughs> I remember I, I would, that, that week that it was on the newsstands, I stood for way longer than I should have at every newsstand, <laughs> hoping and right next to it, Hoping that someone would say, um, hey, no one, nothing, no one. And I remember the guys in the stands would say, you know, the guy working there, honey, if you need to buy something, you can't just stand here. And then one time I just did it and I broke down and I go to the guy, that's me. And he's like, what? And I go, that's me. And I felt so weird, you know, but I'm like, no one else is here. <laughs> I mean, if anyone saw me do this, I'd be the laughing stock. But I didn't care because this week is going to be over soon. And, and, you know, and I'm never going to pass this way again. <laughs> and he just looked and he goes, no shit. <laughs> in an accent, no shit. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to say he said... That's nice, but if you're going to buy some, Yeah, yeah, you still need to. <laughs> you need to get some gum. You need to get some gum. Um, uh, but, yeah, that was pretty surreal. That was, you know, that was like a... Just I couldn't believe it. No one could. I framed that for more people than who wanted it. <laughs> Did they like it more than the free CDs? Um... No, they wanted the free CDs. <laughs> but what 
was great was you want to talk about everything coming around in a full circle was what they what my art my part of the article because I shared the cover with Will, Molly, and Chris, and what my part of the article was all centered on was A and M Records. But you know something, mm-hmm. three of the four on the cover from that Groundling show. Yeah. So it's amazing. You just kept up the work ethic and did it. And so my, my final question for you is this. So there's a lot of... Do I still orgasm when I kiggle? Oh, shoot. I can't ask that question. <laughs> my final question is, is for those people out there in any profession, they're, they're, they find themselves in some small town. They have thoughts about being at a different level they have these imaginary thoughts of how they could be or how it could possibly be but they just don't have any idea how to make the leap and get there and have the kind of career that you have and so i thought maybe you take our audience into that world as to what that means for not only an artist like a young performer who's not even a performer yet, but in any profession that I look at, and you've also executive produced and done things of that level as well in your writing. So what what advice would you give to somebody just starting out to get to the levels that you've gotten to? You know, as I say, when I moved to L.A., it was not to be an actress. Um, it was steps that I took to explore a part of, of myself. And it was really, that's why I'll never forget that woman saying, Sherry, you're funny. You should do the groundlings. And her name is Susan Lindner. Never forget it. And, you know, saying, what is that? I did not know that this existed. And it's like all of those great places, UCB upright, wait, yeah. Upright. Um, and, uh, Second City, and and I say to anybody who's going, go and see a show. If you relate to the show, then take the classes, you know, in that one particular theater. But I fell in love with that, and that led me to SNL. And, you know, here's the irony is that, like, I went, my first job in acting, besides doing a Circle K Burger commercial, and all the time I did, uh, I did... uh, the groundlings and performed and wrote was SNL. So I went from that and, you know, usually people struggle, struggling actress, and then they get their big break. I got my big break. And then now like I'm a struggling actress. So it's, there's so many different stories of how people get somewhere, but I was lucky to be not, and everybody wants fame, which is such a sad thing. And you know, when people ask me about their kid being talented, I said, are they doing plays in school? Uh, well, no. I, well, they should be doing plays in school, you know, and then you can really know how devoted they are to this. Um, they can sing. Are they singing in school? Uh, no. You know, everybody's passing the time when you should be learning your craft and studying and having respect for the people that came before you learning from them. And I guess I'm, I'm old fashioned in a way, but I just stumbled upon something that I loved and it took me to a place that I'd never dreamed of. So find something you love and, uh, 
and just keep, you know, and hone your skill, hone it, do it in front of friends, do it in front of people. Um, that's why I love reading biographies because I love, everybody's got a different story of how they came into a different struggle. And it always makes me feel good sometimes. Like if I feel like I'm struggling and I read a book on somebody's life, like I just read wonderful book, Ellen Burstyn's. And I, um, you know, everybody has a struggle and a story and, you know, and think of the people, everybody's freaking writing books now, people that don't even read books are writing them. So, you know, you can also now read anybody's book that you admire and, uh, you know, and, and kind of follow, but everybody's path, you know, is going to be different. So really make sure you love it enough. There's a song called, I can't play the blues in an air conditioned room. And I think it was uh, Hank Williams. I might be wrong and I'll find out if I'm wrong, but uh, Hank Williams senior, but, um, and it was about a guy, he goes, I used to play the blues all day. Now I'm just ha playing golf. I have to hire a mean old woman just to break my heart because all of his life, he just traveled from town to town playing the blues in it, you know, in, in podunk places and, you know, uh, bars. And uh, then he becomes famous and everything, <laughs> everything sucks in his life, <laughs> you know? So it's kind of like, enjoy the struggle too. Because when you look back, there'll be, you know, like, like the times that I was in classes at the Groundlings. Oh, my God. And with Mike Sweeney and and our little barbecues and not having any money and just being creative and writing. They were like romantic times, you know. And it was the same at SNL, I have to say. Writing and laughing. And uh, that was, even though it was in a much bigger arena, it was still like there was nothing better than Will and I writing and like a cheerleader or something like that would pull a pal and we would be cracking up at three in the morning, you know, so do the work and, and commit. I'm so glad you came here and, uh, me too. This was fun. It's like, I always say that most of your characters, they don't know how bad off they have it. But they is bliss. have this positive attitude despite it. I just want to say that one of the things you said when you came here and throughout this interview, you said you never knew that you deserved to be here. And I can assure you from somebody on the outside who's been on the inside, and I've known you for a long time, I think everybody listening here on this podcast would say that you deserve to be here and you deserve to be a force that you are in this Wait business. Minute, who's that guy in his underwear raising his hand? <laughs> Don't be a jerk. Let him go out on a nice note. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Barry. Thank you so much. <laughs> And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for 
Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. Till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.